Lord, we thank you for your word. It is inspired. It is without error. It is infallible. It is incapable of error because it has come from, as it were, your very lips. And how can you lie? How can you not reveal truth? So every page in the scriptures is yours. And we see from the Old Testament into the New, centuries after centuries would pass and all that is prophesied would surely come to pass because you have ordained history from the beginning. For all your ways have been ordained uh, from the foundation of the earth. And so enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit which is necessary as Jesus told Nicodemus that was necessary to, to be born again Without his understanding, we, we would know nothing. So teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, gonna, we're in John chapter 3, and we're going to pick up at verse 12 down through verse 21. And, and note the context, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, had come to Jesus by night to ask him a question. All of, of this portion of John 3 is Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Let's pick up at verse 12. Jesus is answering the word Nicodemus, and he says, If I told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, <coughs> that, has, that his deeds may be manifested is having been wrought in God. <clears throat> now, as we mentioned last week, this man Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Basically, we mentioned then because it was a time Jesus is very busy during the day, ministry, and so it was an opportunity to come by night. Not so much that I don't think at this point Nicodemus was afraid to be uh, or be be seen with Jesus or having been told that he was with Jesus. 
He was a teacher of the law. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. Jesus referred to him as the teacher of the law. And as, remember that Nicodemus being a member of the Pharisees, that party, the party of the Pharisees, we mentioned last week, had a lot of correct doctrines, but their great failing was that they were a religion of, ex- of externals. And if you practice the externals, everything was all right. They liked to be seen of men uh, standing on the corner with their robes. They liked to be heard with their long prayers. Uh, Jesus, knowing the hearts of all men, had serious issues with the Pharisees and the scribes. And his most scathing uh, rebuke of them is with regard because they were, their religion was essentially all external. And Jesus informs Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got to be you got to be born again from above. You got to be born of the Holy Spirit. All of this is just going right by Nicodemus. He doesn't understand. Uh, he says you got to enter the womb again. Jesus says, no, you got to be born of, of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus. He still doesn't understand. Jesus is trying to inform him that if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You've got to have a changed heart. Now this, one of the reasons probably that Nicodemus this, this could not understand this, even though Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you don't, you don't understand what I'm telling you. Because we looked at some of the passages you recall last week in Ezekiel and elsewhere that talked about the internalization of, of spiritual truth. That God had always looked about the heart. He says, don't circumcise, he says, circumcise your hearts before God. And so he says, Nicodemus, you, you should be aware of these things. You're the, the teacher of Israel and you don't know this. But the reason you don't know it is, remember, truth is revealed truth. Unless God reveals it, we will never understand it. So in this, in this dialogue that Jesus is having with Nicodemus occurs the most famous verse. We'd have to say, is it John 3.16, the most famous verse in all of the Bible? Yeah, it is. Let's put John 3.16 in the context. It's in the context of Jesus' teaching uh, Nicodemus what is necessary to see the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at our text there in verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now, what Jesus is about to tell Nicodemus is, he says, Nicodemus, he's going to stress that God's decree to redeem mankind for a people for himself is in a realm of Knowledge, it's beyond earthly knowledge to understand. And there is no man that has ever ascended up to the very throne of God to understand these things. What it took was someone descending to the earth to reveal this to them. We're going to see Jesus several times, especially in the book of John, where he emphasizes that 
I have come to reveal these things. He who has seen me, we're later on in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I've revealed truth to you. We, we, we have stressed uh, Matthew 16 where Jesus was asking the disciples who the men say that I am and they all said various things. Elijah, the, uh, John the Baptist come back from the dead and, and it's Peter who says you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, you would not have known that unless my father in heaven revealed that to you. You and I would do not know and would not have responded to the gospel if it were not for the fact that the Holy Spirit revealed to, our, to us, had changed our heart and set our will free to embrace Jesus. So what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is as great as Moses was, and he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Moses didn't ascend uh, to the throne room the throne room of God to learn of him. And again, if anyone is to know something, it must be revealed to him. Only Jesus, well, only the son of God coming and taking upon himself real human flesh, he has revealed God to us. Now, in a significant passage in that regard, turn with me over to Matthew 11, verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking here and he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So Nicodemus, so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, all of this has to be revealed, Nicodemus, to you. Now, as we look at verses 14 through 18 of John 3, we're going to see that this is the very heart and the center of God's plan of redemption. And Jesus now is going to inform Nicodemus of the purposes of the Son of Man coming into this world. And he does so by utilizing a very important Old Testament incident in the history of Israel. He's going to refer to that event recorded, and we're going to take a look at it in a moment, in, in Numbers 29. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is making a comparison of himself being lifted up to Moses lifting up a serpent. So if we're going to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here, if we're going to understand the context of John 3.16, 
we got to take a look at that passage. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. And we're going to take a look at the first six verses. Well, now we're going to take a look at all uh, down through verse 9. Numbers 21. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they had bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard that is a pole, and It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, the pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, what was was the, the, the great sin that the people had been engaged in that God would send fiery serpents, meaning poisonous snakes, to bite the people and many people died. They had complained about why did God send them out to the wilderness to die? Why did God give them this miserable bread from heaven that just showed up in the morning every day and they would pick it up? You see how terrible it was? They, they complained to the living God. They, they complained of God's provision for them that delivered them in the wilderness. And God says, I'm going to judge you for it. And he sends these snakes. So all those people that were getting bit by these snakes were going to die. They realized maybe we should not have complained. And maybe we should not have been complained against the Lord. And as usual, what do they do? They beg Moses to intercede for them. He'd already interceded for them on another occasion, remember? God was ready to, to wipe Israel out when Moses was on the Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. And they were reveling down there and set up a golden calf and were worshiping it. And God was ready to destroy him then. But he didn't because Moses interceded. Moses interceded on their behalf. And again, we're going to see throughout Israel several times God was going to just wreak havoc in Israel and Moses interceded on their behalf. He intercedes again and God tells them what he's got to do. Now, we should note from this passage in Numbers that, that death is the penalty for sin. And the people realized that they had sinned and they were begging for mercy. That's what they wanted. They want mercy. Now we should understand the the deadly and destructive nature of sin, which is implied here. 
You see, the guilt of sin is like the pain of being bit by the fiery serpent. And the power of the corruption of sin is like that venom, that poison that spreads throughout the whole body very quickly. Unless something happens, you're going to die. And as bad as that bite by those serpents was, there was a powerful remedy to it. But this powerful remedy would not come from anything from within themselves. It would have to come from external to themselves. So the ability to be delivered from death, right, would have to come from outside and only God's provision would deliver someone from death. So keep in mind now why Jesus is telling, bringing up this historical event. Because he's comparing himself to Moses being lifted, uh, the serpent being lifted up, to himself being lifted up, which he is saying it is um, a reference we see in the scripture when it says being lifted up, Jesus says it's referring to his crucifixion. I must be lifted up on a pole just like this serpent. If you held it up and people looked to it in faith, then they were healed. But you see, you had to look at that pole raised up by Moses. You had to look at it and you had to look at it in faith. And by looking at it, anyone who was bitten, all they had to do was look. Now, he didn't say, you got to go do penance. You got to go run around the camp so many times. You got to say so many magical things, incantations. You don't have to uh, demonstrate by some good works. All you needed to do, look at the provision that God had provided. That's all you had to do. But you had to look in faith. You had to look in faith. You know, this is interesting because I'm, I'm reminded, most all of y'all, all of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon, right? The, the, the great Baptist preacher of England, one of the most uh, notable great preachers that God's ever raised up. I don't know if you know the story of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. He was raised up in a home and he was taught the scriptures. And at age nine, he could recite whole passages of scripture and somebody said, Charles, one day you ought to be a preacher. You, you, God will raise you up. Well, that went on when he was 15 years of age. He was going somewhere in London. I think I could have the date wrong. It might be 1850, 1851. A great a snowstorm arose. He never could make the destination. So he stopped in at this chapel where there was a lot of loud singing going on. And it was a primitive Methodist chapel. The primitive Methodists were known as the ranters because they sang so loud. Some people said we can't even stand it. They're so loud in their preaching. It's when my great-great-granddaddy was the primitive Methodist, by the way. So the 15-year-old uh, Spurgeon goes in there, and the regular uh, preacher wasn't there, so they had a stand-in. 
And Charles Spurgeon, in his testimony, it's a, it's a great testimony. It's humorous, but it's, he was very critical of the message. But here's what he said. He said, there was a man there who spoke for 10 minutes and he could hardly string coherent sentences together. <laughs> and yet, he said, this man was preaching on, guess what? This very text, John three fourteen through 16. But Spurgeon says, I was not accustomed of preachers pointing me out in person because he pointed out to the 15-year-old who ducked kind of down below the, uh, the pews Spurgeon says, I was not yet a Christian, even though he had this background behind him. And he says this incoherent, he called it dumb man, <laughs> preached on this section and God just came, comes to him in a powerful way. And he says that, because this preacher, he did say and was able to string together the necessity of looking to Jesus raised up like the brazen serpent was. And he realized, I had never really done that. Only, you know what that goes to show? It doesn't have to be an articulate man, but as, as one who is faithful, at least to bring out the scriptures, you know, the Holy Spirit can do amazing things. And the Holy Spirit did. It was on this text of scripture. Now, what we see here. <clears throat> When the people were bitten and God told Moses to, to make a bronze serpent and to raise it up, and all they had to do, as I said, was look. Now, that looking in faith is not the basis of their salvation. But that raised up serpent was the provision that God had given Israel, and it was that provision that they had to look to. So one was not going to be, but then at the same time, it wasn't anything magical about that raised serpent, but it was the provision that God gave and the, the command that he gave to look at it. I remember this morning in the comment was made, one of the, the, the sins of Israel was that there was a tendency that that bronze serpent apparently had been saved for centuries and people were worshiping it and it was Hezekiah in his restoration in, in Israel that tore down uh, that bronze serpent. It says he broke it to pieces as he ought to because it was a stumbling block to Israel. Now the thing about it is one has to look and it must be a look in faith but it is a look in the provision. It is that what God has provided that will heal. They didn't heal themselves, right? No. Now why was a serpent chosen that's a good question we could ask ourselves. Well, for one thing, if you know from the scriptures in Genesis 3, the serpent is a cursed creature. 
God and he pronounced when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and God began to pass the judgment on all the respective parties uh, from um, Adam and Eve to, to the serpent and it would crawl on its belly the rest of its life and eat dust. It was a cursed creature. Now Jesus says, the son of man must be lifted up just like that bronze serpent was lifted up. And God's provision for the deliverance from this deadly poison of the brazen serpent involved them in faith looking to that provision that God gave. So all those who looked as God commanded, they would be healed. Now what are we told from the scriptures? Why a serpent? Again, I believe because the serpent is a cursed creature. What are we told about Jesus? He was cursed for our sake, was he not? Turn with me to two passages of Scripture. First, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, we uh, mention verses 4 through 6 and then verse 10. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Then look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Smitten for our sake. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 21. Oh my God the Father, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Several things about this. He was sinless, but he was made sin. He was cursed. He was born in the law and he would be cursed because as Paul brings out in Galatians, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he became sin in a relationship with his 
covenant people, and we become the righteousness of God in him. Don't miss that. In him. Not in ourselves, not in what we're doing, but in him. He's making atonement for our sins. So when he says that the son of man must must be lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, the bronze serpent. God provided that provision for their healing from a fatal uh, bite. Likewise, we will receive healing as we're going to see if we believe in him who is raised up on a tree. There's that great comparison. So, to understand the greatness of John 3.16, as we said, the most well-known verse probably in the Bible, we've got to first understand the horrible state that we find ourselves in. That's why Jesus mentions uh, that incident. They were in dire straits, and they had to be delivered by God's provision. What does the Bible say in Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death. Israel had to be delivered by someone beside themselves. Likewise, we have to be delivered by someone outside of ourselves. Keep in mind that faith, faith is simply the means by which you and I lay hold of Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can save us. You know, our catechism is, is wonderful in this regard, talking about the relationship of saving faith. Saving faith is something that, we, that has to happen, but it's not that faith that actually saves us. It's Jesus who saves us. It's Jesus who saves, but at the same time, you have to exercise that means. You have to believe. You have to look in faith. Just as Israel looked in faith, if they looked in faith, now, you see, that's the thing. Why would you look unless you believe that what was said? If you look, you would be healed. Imagine those people who said, no, I ain't gonna take a look. It doesn't say that, but you could imagine that. No, I ain't gonna take a look, that's stupid. No, no, if you just take a look, believing the promise, you'll be healed. Now, Jesus says, it's the same way. This move from verse 15 to verse 16 is very natural. Uh, and, And go back to John 3. And what we learn from that great passage in John 16 is that salvation is a gift from God. That's what we learn. Now, the brazen serpent raised up was a gift from God as well. God didn't have to do that, but he did. That's what he provided. That salvation, Jesus says, now remember, he's talking to Nicodemus, who's struggling to understand the internalization of what it means to be born again. 
And what we see here, this salvation is an act of love on God, for it says, for God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only begotten son. You see, the biblical understanding of love is always entailing an action. It's not just some feeling. It is an action. And with regard to our salvation, it is a sovereign action of God who does something. And what did he do? What did the father do? He gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And just like everyone who looked at that brazen serpent in faith were healed, Jesus says to me who is lifted up, if you look unto me, then believingly you will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. Now turn with me to two great passages of scripture that uh, bring out this very well of what John 3.16 is saying. And that is, first of all, turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Remember God gave his only begotten son out of love. Out of God's love, he gives. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died. The love of God is given to a people who don't deserve anything what they deserve is to perish forever in hell. That's what, we, that's what we all deserve. But God shows love. And, and when God shows love, he does something. And he gave his only son. That's what he did. Turn over to 1 John 4, 10. We've looked at this passage many times in different circumstances. But look what it says in verse in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You what God is saying is, I'm going to tell you what love is, and here it is. It's not that we love God. We didn't arouse ourselves. Let's just like Isaiah said, no one arouses himself to take hold of thee. Isaiah 64, 7. No one. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins, the scripture says. We're all condemned. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not that we have mustered up some love for God. No, God says, if you're going to be saved, I got to do something. And here is love that 
I have sent my son to be the propitiation for sins. Now, again, so that we're clear of the meaning of propitiation, propitiation is the satisfaction of divine justice or wrath by means of a bloody sacrifice. That is what propitiation means. In other words, there is no way that you and I are going to be saved from the wrath of God who, that hangs over all of our heads unless the Father's Son satisfies the wrath of God. And what was the satisfaction? Someone's got to die. Someone's got to die for the sins. And it's either going to be you or someone else. And God has chosen to allow a substitute to pay the price. And that's what saves us from the wrath of God. So it is never, ever man reaching up to God, but it is God condescending to us in order to save us. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, now, now, now understand, again, where is Nicodemus coming from? The Pharisee party. Salvation is by outward works to the law of Moses. And Jesus is telling him nothing could be further from the truth, Nicodemus. Well, it says, you know, turning back to our passage in John 3, who does he say that God loved? He loved the world. God so loved the world. Now, not everybody, we know from the scriptures, not everybody in the world is saved because we know there are some people who don't believe and who do perish in their sins. So what, what, what is he meaning by the word world here? You know, it would do you well sometime to do a word study of the word cosmos, world, because that's the word world that's used in the New Testament. And you're going to see three different meanings. Well, it can refer to what I believe is said here to mankind in general. It is used also in scripture where the, the Bible says that the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were jealous of Jesus. Why? Because everybody was following him. And the scripture says, uh, the Pharisee says, the whole world is following him. Oh, really? The whole world? Does that mean everybody without exception? What they meant was it's a whole bunch of people that are following Jesus. And then in 1 John, we see that the word uh, world is used in a very negative sense. God says, do not love the world, do the things that are in the world. So the word world can be a system of thought in direct opposition to God. So you have to decide, well, which, how's it being used? Well, God so loved mankind that he sent his son. The, I think a, a helpful passage to illustrate this is Revelation 5.9. So turn with me to Revelation 5, 9. (laughs) 
this great scene in heaven of the 24 elders bowing before the lamb. And they're singing a new song in verse nine. And notice what they're singing. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. Who did Jesus die for? Men from wherever they are on the planet Earth. All language groups, all tribes, people, the world. That's how it needs to be understood. Now, if you look at at verse 17, it says, for God's, well, it says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Well, what we see here is that it reveals the purpose of Jesus' first advent. You remember when, uh, when the angel told Joseph not to put away Mary, who was with child, that she is carrying the holy child conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you shall name him Jesus, and name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came in order to die. And so we're told that the the first advent of Jesus was for the purpose of the gospel going out so that people might be saved. You know, there's an event, I don't know if I mentioned this in one of the messages on John or uh, Colossians. Remember John and James, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, and they were going from Galilee to Judea and they had to pass, pass through Samaria and Jesus told them to go ahead, find lodging for them in Samaria, which some went ahead and when they found out that this Jew was coming through Samaria. Remember, there was great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds in a very insulting way. And the Samaritans said, no, you can't have lodging. <laughs> so they turned down Jesus and his, his apostles, uh, disciples. And remember, John... <laughs> And James were so upset. He says, Lord, do you want... Now, you understand why they were called the sons of thunder. He says, Lord, do you want us to call down thunder and just destroy them? How dare they be so rude to us? Just let us call down thunder. And, you know, Jesus has to rebuke John and, and, and James saying, look, the son of man has come to save sinners, not to destroy them, but to save sinners. And so that was the purpose of his first advent. Well, what's the purpose of his second advent? Well, part of that is, turn with me over to 
2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians 1, and we'll begin um, at verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 and following. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who were afflicted and to us as well when the, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, now notice, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In his first advent, he comes to preach the gospel so that men might be saved. When he comes again, it is to exonerate the righteous, but it is to repay the wicked for all their deeds. And why are they wicked? Because they did not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He, now Jesus, turning back, turn back to John 3 here. Jesus says, verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know what the greatest, I've mentioned this before, the greatest sin that can ever be committed by anybody is the failure to repent and believe when the gospel is preached to them. That is the greatest sin that can ever be committed to them. Now turn with me. We've looked at this before. Turn to Matthew 10. And take a look at verse, let's pick up at verse 11. He's sending out disciples to preach. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let, it, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. 
And whoever does not receive you or does not heed your words, does not heed your words, as you go out of that house, shake off the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That's why Jesus had such a scathing condemnation of the cities of Capernaum, Tyre, and Sidon. Well, Capernaum and, um, and Bethsaida. He did a lot of his miracles in Galilee. A lot of miracles around Capernaum, but it didn't do him any good. He was resisted. In fact, uh, hardly anyone believed there, despite all the things that they saw. And it was a tragedy. They had the gospel preached to them, and they resisted. So, Jesus is telling Nicodemus in John 3, he says, look at 19, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. This, the condemnation is that this sin who has condemned them There's a light that has come and has shown and they would rather remain in the darkness than come to the light. The light is self-evidencing. The light is the gospel that is preached to them and has obligations. That great scene, we got to turn to Matthew 4 again. Turn to Matthew 4 when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee Look at Matthew 4, verses 16 and following. Jesus comes to this area. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and under the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When you see the light, you and I are on obligation to respond to the light. The gospel is said to be the light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Notice it says when he came to those in Galilee, they were sitting in darkness. They were under God's judgment and they were under the shadow of death, the consequences of being in spiritual darkness. So what are you supposed to do if you're in spiritual darkness? Respond to the command to repent and believe the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what Jesus told them to do. And if we refuse to repent of our sins, if we refuse to believe in the light that is shining, then we've already judged ourselves. 
That's what Jesus says. You already stand condemned. Now, why would a person, Jesus says, turn back to John 3, why would a person not respond to the great light and do what God wants them to do? Well, Jesus explains it. Look at verse 20. Well, verse 19, going moving over into 20 and 21. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And everyone who does not, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You know what this is revealing about sinners? Sinners don't want to be confronted with their evil deeds. Uh, Was Herod Antipas, did he like being confronted with his evil deeds when John the Baptist says, it is unlawful, Herod, to have your brother's wife. And Herodias hated John the Baptist, connived a meeting to get Herod drunk because he had sensual eyes towards the daughter of Herodias and then had her do this lewd dancing and he said I'll give you he says I'll give you half of my kingdom she says alright then when it's over what do you want I want the head of John the Baptist oh no not, no no uh, you promised you promised and Herodias says lest you be found a king who doesn't honor his word and now everybody's standing around are you going to honor your word king Herod didn't like to be confronted. Herodias didn't like to be confronted with her sin. And evil men don't like to be confronted. You know, the Proverbs, as the Proverbs says, rebuke a fool and he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Christ is hated because sin is loved. And men sometimes, they don't want to be confronted by their, by their actions, their sinful actions. They don't want to be exposed. But you see, the gospel exposes them. If you're really preaching the gospel, you've got to bring out the nature of sin and you have to bring out to the person you're talking to, you stand condemned. You stand under the wrath of God and you will perish in your sins unless you repent and believe in the provision that God has provided, which is Jesus. And unless you do that, you won't. And so men, they love the darkness. They won't respond to the gospel 
unless something happens. Now remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Men are not going to respond, Nicodemus, unless they are born again from above by the Spirit of God who will cleanse them from all their sin. That's the only way you're going to be freed. That's the only way, Nicodemus, that you're going to be saved. You got to be born again. Now remember, the rebirth precedes faith. That's why in John, remember, I, I, let's, I want you to, I just want to emphasize this as I close. Turn back to uh, John 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were, who were, I'm going to stress that, who were born of God, not by of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know, the only way you and I will ever repent and will ever believe in the one who was raised up on our behalf is if our heart has been changed. Is if our heart has been changed. You see, the will of man only does what the heart tells it to do. That's why Jesus says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. So whatever is the condition of your heart is going to determine what you and I are going to do. And there's no way that we are going to choose Jesus now, we have to choose Jesus. We have to take that look in faith. We have to. But you're not going to take that look until you want to. And you're not going to want to unless your heart's been changed and you've been made a new creation until you've been born again. Nicodemus, there's got to be a radical change, Nicodemus. And it's not by all those works that you've been raised all your life. You got to be born like this, Nicodemus, if you're going to see the kingdom of God. Now, I mentioned last week, I think there is biblical evidence that it finally broke through with Nicodemus because of his defense of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and because what he and Joseph of Arimathea, remember, he spent an enormous amount of money to bring the, um, the myrrh and aloes. And myrrh was viewed as one of the greatest and most cherished, expensive uh, spices in the ancient world. 70 pounds of that he brought. So I think in the end, in time, Nicodemus remembered this. Well, let's ask for the Lord's blessing as we leave. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Where would we be without Jesus? Lost is where we would be. Condemned is where we would be. 
So we thank you that uh, as when Jesus sent out the 70 to preach and gave them authority over demons and the ability to heal men of all their diseases, they came back rejoicing that the demons were subject. They were doing miraculous deeds in the name of Jesus. And then Jesus says, you need to be, what you need to be joyful is that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what we're thankful for, Jesus, that you caused us to be born again by your spirit so that we might see the gospel and trust in who Jesus is to the salvation of our souls. We praise your holy name. Amen.